0: verses 3 through 14, and that's found on page 976 if you're using the Pew Bible. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. As you're turning there, uh, Travis reminded me of a B.B. Warfield quote this morning with regard to Ephesians chapter 1. B.B. Warfield said that Ephesians 1 should never be read just read it should be sung i'm not going to try to sing through the passage for you but here is uh, this wondrous text from god's word for us today ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 here now again the precious word of god blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Heavenly Father, what wondrous words, what wondrous words. How can we keep, Lord, from singing and praising at hearing such wondrous words of truth? O oh Lord, let all that is done and said, let all that is preached be done to the praise of your glory and grace. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word, O oh Lord, is truth. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I hope you could notice from the, the, the way that that reads that Paul here is not building a theological argument. What he's doing is celebrating. Now, we know Paul can argue. We know Paul is a master logician. We see this in his other letters. We see this in his other works. So that we, we, we know how the man, we know that the man knows how to argue, but this passage does not read like an argument. Paul is not really on the offensive. He's not really on the defensive. In fact, I think that what Paul's doing here is he's got his hands up. He has his eyes lifted to heaven in a prayer of celebration and thanksgiving for what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. In fact, there are many scholars and commentators who believe that what Paul is doing here is actually praying, and he's praying a prayer that that takes up almost the entirety of Ephesians. It begins in 1-3, but doesn't stop until until the end of chapter 3. If you look there, that's where we get the amen. Look at the end of chapter 3. That's where the amen comes. And so many people, many scholars and commentators believe that almost the entirety of Ephesians is a prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's Paul celebrating the indicative. It's Paul celebrating what is true about what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. And we get that in verse 3, right from the get-go. What does he say? Look there with me. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every blessing of God, every possible advantage, every possible good thing that God could give you is yours because you are united to the one who was sacrificed for your sake, the very Son of God, Christ Jesus. What is what is Paul really celebrating? What's what's the ground or the foundation of Paul's celebration here? It's the sovereignty of God at work in our salvation. Paul is celebrating the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And brothers and sisters, I I, I have to say that it is a it is a great And and sad tragedy that when it comes to a word like predestination, there is often a reaction of anger or confusion or frustration or dismissiveness or suspicion. When for Paul, that word is so full of joy, he can barely contain himself. And so we ought to to ask ourselves, and my hope for us today is that by the end of this sermon, we will be blowing the roof off of this church building with praise and doxology because that's what Paul's doing here. He's celebrating. He's celebrating what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus to redeem his people, to redeem his church, to perfect them and sanctify them, to give them a future and a hope. The sovereignty of God uh, overwhelms and envelops and fills this passage but it's the application of god's sovereignty in our salvation that really brings out the joy and so what i want to do is i want to i want to look at our lives in the scope of god's sovereign plan and i want to begin first in the past. I want to begin in the past and I want to show you this morning through this passage what Paul declares to us, which is this that our past is graciously forgiven. Our past is graciously forgiven. So we're going to start there. Our past is graciously forgiven. Then as Paul does, he 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 begins to also look at the future. And so we are also going to look at the future and see that our future is unchangingly secure. Our future is unchangingly secure. And then finally, we're going to look at what our response should be in the present in light of the fact that our past has been graciously forgiven and our future has been unchangingly secure. We're going to look at what our response should be in the present. And I want to submit to you this morning that our response should be this, a life of joy, joyful thanksgiving, expectant hope, and the pursuit of holiness. Our lives should be marked by a joyous thanksgiving, an expectant hope, and the pursuit of holiness. Colossians 1.16 says this. I really could just leave you with this because this ties everything together. Colossians 1.16 says that in him, speaking of Jesus, in Jesus and, and by him, in him and by him and for him, all things hold together. Everything is held together by Jesus Christ. The, all the rhythms and, and the, the, the chaotic busyness of our lives, the, the, the perceived chaos in the world right now, brothers and sisters, all things are being held together by Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus holds all things together. And this fact again, should lead us to praise and doxology and worship. And I hope that's where you end up this morning. So let's begin. Let's look at our first point. Our past is graciously forgiven. For the sinner that's saved by grace, for the sinner who's sitting in the pews this morning or the sinner standing here at the pulpit, for the sinner who's aware of the deep stains and consequences of their sin, for the sinner who's burdened and bowed down because they know they're sinful, for that sinner, brothers and sisters, it, it's hard to conceive of a more wondrous word, a more wondrous statement than this. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. The, the song that just comes blasting into my head when I hear those words is this. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. For sin would reduce me to utter despair, but through thy free goodness, O God, my spirits revive. As I consider that he who first made me still keeps me alive today. Thy mercy, O Lord, is more than a match for my sinful heart, which wonders in awe to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground. And weep to the praise, the mercy that I've found. I feel like that captures exactly how we're to feel when we hear those words. And sinner, hear those words this morning. If you're struggling with your sin this morning, hear these words. You are forgiven in Christ Jesus. As many tears of shame as you may have cried for that sin. And I've cried many myself. Let there also then be tears of joy at this wondrous news. You are graciously forgiven. Every wrongdoing. Graciously pardoned and forgiven in Christ. You are graciously forgiven because you are graciously chosen. Graciously forgiven because you are graciously chosen. Paul tells us this in verse 4 that you were chosen before the foundations of the world were formed. We We were loved in the mind of God before we existed on this earth. And I can tell you that you were not chosen because you're the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme. You were not chosen, though, either because you were at the bottom of the barrel. You were not chosen because you were top of the class and you're not chosen because you're at the bottom of the roster riding the bench. You were chosen simply and totally because God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. That's why. And he loved you before you could ever love him. Your past is graciously forgiven because you were graciously chosen. The word, they're chosen, elected, it means to be selected out from among. You were brought out from sin and misery and death and hell. You were taken up as an iron out of the fire and brought into a new state, God's love being set upon you in eternity past that you should be His, chosen according to the perfect will of God. And when I read that, the first question that comes to mind is why? Why me? Why you? And that is a question, brothers and sisters, that I cannot fully answer. But what I can tell you is that it is to the praise of God's glorious grace. I can tell you that you were chosen so that you might glorify God and enjoy him forever. I can tell you that it ought to lead you to a lifelong pursuit of holiness. It ought to drive you to share the good news with others. And I can tell you that it should never, ever lead you to pride and to boasting. But it should lead you instead to confess in great humility with Isaac Watts. When I write sermons, I can't get hymns out of my head. Here he says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the wedding feast of the Lamb, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? Why did you choose me? Or perhaps in the more modern hymn, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, that his wounds have paid my ransom. What should that produce in us, brothers and sisters? Gratefulness, thanksgiving, and humility. The person who understands that they were chosen by no merit of their own is the one who's going to truly enjoy the the, the richness and thankfulness of humility. The person who understands the weight and gravity of their sin is the one who's going to taste the sweetest fruit of God's mercy. The, The person who understands what God has sovereignly accomplished in their salvation is the one who's going to experience the kind of rich joy that leads Paul to To pray in thanksgiving for three and a half pages. Graciously forgiven because we were graciously chosen. We were selected, drawn out, brought up out of sin and misery and brought into what? Paul goes on to say that we were chosen from among the children of wrath to be brought into the family of grace. Paul describes the result of our election in Christ Jesus in this way that you have been adopted into the family of God. In love, God chose us, and in love, he sovereignly ordained us to be adopted into the family of God to have his name placed upon your head. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of God's love, and there's a video that that circulated the internet for quite some time, and it was a family who's waiting at the airport. They've waited for three years, three years in the process of adoption to adopt two siblings from, from Africa, and in this, in this video, the, the, the child, the younger boy, comes streaking through the airport. The older one's a little bit more dignified. he kind of takes his time, but the little boy runs through the airport, jumps into the arm of his, arms of his adopted parents, and they just immediately start weeping with joy. There's people flying by. You know how busy airports are. They don't care. They are so caught up in that moment of love and union that is the image that floods into my heart and mind when i think about god adopting us you might also think of the many videos we can see now thankfully of the of uh, uh, of the courtroom process and to see the smile on the child's face when their name is changed to the name uh, their last name is changed to the, the name of their adopted family to see that child In his bright smile, no, I am no longer an orphan. I have a family. It's even sweeter when you realize that we were not adopted because we were the best candidates. I'll I'll speak for myself here, okay? But but if God did not bring me into His family and bestow His name upon me because I was the best among many, right? If you were going to pick the best case scenario for adoption, I would not be it. But it becomes all the more sweeter when we recognize that simply out of God's free grace and mercy, he he loved me in spite of my unloveliness. He died for me while I was still ungodly, while I was still a sinner. These are abundant and rich words that Paul uses to describe our salvation in Jesus Christ. And I love when he's kind of summarizing things in verse 7. He says, we've been chosen, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed. Our past transgressions have been forgiven. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon you. Isn't that a great word? Lavished upon you, right? He's not skimping. It's the whole cup, the whole bowl, lathered up, poured on and overflowing, completely covered. It's lavishing forgiveness. That's what you've received in Christ. Like right? Paul Paul here cannot help but spill the overflowing cup of abundance of blessing that he's received, every spiritual blessing lavished upon you in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing. Hear this good news today: everything you've done, everything you've left undone, every sin upon the scroll of your life. I often tell the men at the anchorage. Were we in a courtroom, which for many of them is a very familiar scene, and the, and the judge places the scroll, of the, sin of, uh, the scroll of my life with all the sins recorded, and he, he flicks that scroll, and it goes rolling down off the pulpit and out the door, and it just keeps on going. That scroll lies before the judge, but right before he comes down with the gavel, and the gavel will come down, Christ steps in and says, put it on me. And that gavel still comes down. But the charge of guilty is applied to Christ, not to me. Brothers and sisters, that scroll of all the sins that you have committed and will commit, that scroll has a big stamp across the top of it that says, pardoned in Christ Jesus. This is forgiveness lavished upon us. This is good news. I don't know about y'all. But one of the ways that Satan works to discourage me is by uh, making a habit of afflicting me with vivid replays of all my worst and most embarrassing sins. And usually when I'm laying down to try to go to sleep at night. Maybe some of you, by, by the sound of it, some of you can resonate, right? When I'm with, in moments when I'm seeking peace and rest, that's when Satan comes to replay my worst And most embarrassing sins. He's always endeavoring to make us feel that sense of condemnation and guilt. He's always trying to keep us from the sweet rest of, of knowing and reflecting upon passages like this, where we can actually sense and feel that we are pardoned in Christ Jesus. He strives against my grasping hold of Christ's forgiveness. He strives against my laying hold of Christ's sacrifice because he knows if I get my hands on what Christ has accomplished, I will have peace. I'll have rest and satisfaction in my soul. He knows that if I find Christ and if my, if my mind is filled with thoughts of Christ, my thoughts will be of peace. He knows that if my heart is filled with Christ, my feelings will be of joy and gladness. And he knows, Satan knows, that we're desperate for the gospel of grace and he does everything he can to obscure that gospel of grace by keeping a, a rolling record of your sin running in your mind. He wants to keep that scroll of your sins in front of you and to keep you reading every line on it. Despair is his objective. And if he can't get you to despair over past sins, he will entice you with new sins and then make you feel despair for those sins. And the the kind of despair that Satan loves, it thrives in the soil of regret. It thrives in the soil of regret. And so the longer that he can make us dwell on, the longer we're made to think on, the longer that we let that visual replay of our sins go on and on in our mind, the more despair and shame and rejection we're going to feel. But brothers and sisters, regret and shame and fear have no place to stand in the light of Christ's forgiveness So thinking on meditating on combating the darkness of Satan with the light of Christ's forgiveness is your solution. And so I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you the next time that Satan comes to give you that vivid replay of your sins. Go to Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 and pray it in his face. Say to that great deceiver and ancient serpent, you fool, I'm chosen, elected unto salvation before the foundations of the earth were formed by my sovereign God and king. I am adopted. The certificate of my name bears the name of the most high God. I'm no longer a slave to the power of the prince of the air. I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm a child of grace. I have a seat at the table of grace. I have a dedicated stone on the heavenly mantle and fireplace. My, my my picture is in the proverbial wallet of God. Tell him that you've been redeemed by the shed blood of Christ. That the blood of the lamb is painted across the doorpost of your heart. Such that death may not enter in. Tell him that you no longer bear the stains of sin. You bear the marks of Calvary. Tell him that Christ's sacrifice has secured your pardon, that you've been washed, that you've been cleansed, that you've been purified in the fountain of Emmanuel's blood. And then sing, sing in his devilish faith. face, my sin, oh, the bliss. Would you sing with me? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Seriously, sing it in his face. Horatio Spafford can barely get those words out on page before erupting in praise. Have you ever thought about that? He says, my sin, and then it's the interjection, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Now, he's writing this down. He could have just kept on going, but he wants you to see the interjection of praise because he cannot think on this. He cannot meditate on this wondrous reality without erupting in doxology, without erupting in praise. (laughs) My sin, he says. Oh, the bliss, oh, the the joy, the sweetness of this glorious thought. Your sin, your many sins, my sin, my many, many sins, not in part, but in the whole are nailed to the wood of that cursed cross and we bear it no more. What else could we do but praise the Lord? (sighs) No condemnation shall ever fall again upon your head. Colossians says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead, but God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you. That record of debt, that scroll, Christ set aside and nailed it to the cross. How can we keep from praising God for the forgiveness of Christ Jesus? I'm really just paraphrasing Martin Luther here. He said "He said this. He said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this, saints. Yes, serpent, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. When we consider, brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God in our salvation, it it, it ought to drive Satan from his seat with joy and thanksgiving. These wondrous and rich theological truths of our election, our adoption and our justification, these ought to be a cause for raucous celebration. I could sum up, Really, the entirety of this sermon and this passage with these two phrases that are, seem to be repeated quite a bit. According to the purpose of his will, that's God's sovereignty, to the praise of his glory. That's doxology. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, your past has been graciously forgiven. Now, let us also look to the future and what awaits In verses 11 through 14, we're given a particularly encouraging statement of the surety of what God's sovereign plan and salvation has accomplished for us in the ages to come. Would you look there with me? In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I want you to note, first of all, that that word obtained does not mean that we have gained something by our own strength or gained something by our own works. It is obtained, you notice, right, according to the purpose of God through Christ Jesus. This is something that's been given to us, but it is something that we can say we own. It is something that we can say is ours. And what is this that we have received? It's an inheritance, It's an inheritance that Peter will elsewhere describe as imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Let me put that in our modern parlance, never dimming, always pure and forever new. And what is this inheritance? What is this inheritance that we're promised to receive? What is this inheritance that awaits us as saints of Christ Jesus? Scripture does not tell us everything, but it does give us some things. We can say that it's a place. In John 14, Jesus, in preparing his disciples for his ascension, tells them that he goes to prepare a place for them. So that means that our inheritance, it it, it is some sort of place. Now, I don't know what it's going to be, but I can say that if Jesus is preparing it, it's going to be good. And, 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 And whether it is a mansion or a shack beside the king, I'll be so enraptured with him, that it won't matter. But we can say that Christ is preparing for us a place. It is also a kingdom. Christ is preparing for us a kingdom. Romans 5 tells us that we will reign with Christ. We will be co-heirs with Christ. So there's going to be some form of kingdom that will be a part of the inheritance that we receive. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we'll inherit new bodies. Some of us are thinking, yes and amen. We will have heavenly bodies. We will receive heavenly bodies as a part of our inheritance. Revelation 21 and Psalm 126 tell us that our inheritance will be a reaping of perfect peace and endless joy in worship. What we have sown in tears here on earth, we will reap with sheaves of joy in heaven. Revelation speaks also particularly of a, of a purity symbolized by white robes that we will receive, white robes that are cleansed with the blood of the Lamb. We will have a perfect conscience and a will. We will no longer desire sin. Amen? 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, beyond all words, it is a glory beyond all comparison. I don't have the right words to describe that kind of glory. It is a glory beyond all comparison. But I, 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 I think... One of the most wondrous passages that explain what our inheritance is to be is John 17. Because in John 17, we see this wonderful oneness and unity and love, a perfect relationship of unity and love between the Trinity that Christ is praying that we would be brought into. So here, believers, I think is the greatest joy of heaven, God himself being brought into that relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where we are perfectly united to, perfectly one with, perfectly in love with the triune God. That's an inheritance worth rejoicing over. I know that there is much chaos that's going on in our world, but in a world of chaos, think on that. In your suffering, think on that. In your trials, think on that. When your body is failing, think on that. Think on it until you can no longer think upon it anymore, until your faith is turned to sight. And we enjoy that unity and oneness with the one who made us for himself. Another question that comes when we consider our heavenly inheritance is this. How how can we know? How, How can we know That this is truly what we're going to receive. How How can we trust that what God has promised is in fact true, that we will receive what he has promised? And Paul tells us here, he points to the word of truth and he points to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The word of truth and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The faithful testimony, I've said this before, the faithful testimony of God's word throughout the ages demonstrates over and over and over again to endless satisfaction the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant promises. Brothers and sisters, we have 66 books pointing to a record of God's faithfulness. How, do, how can we know that we can trust him? Look at the 66 books of God's faithfulness. The faithful testimony of God's word shows over and over again in so many different ways, ways that we we will never exhaust, ways that we will never be done with, ways that will continually encourage us no matter what situation we face. It is the living word. It will apply to every situation and circumstance of your life. And there you will find comfort in the fact that God is faithful. His word shows that he is faithful. Numbers 23, 19 says this far better than I can, so I'm just going to read this. These are God's own words of himself. Here's what God says. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Trust God's word. We would do well in moments of doubt, which will... Undoubtedly come into your life. If you have not already experienced times where you will struggle to believe the promises of God, we would do well to go to passages like Hebrews 6:13,20, which the ESV aptly titles "The certainty of God's promise." And there we see that God swore by His own name to uphold his end of the bargain. Because he didn't have anything else that he could, no higher being, nothing else that he could swear by, but but himself, his own name. And he provides for us, that passage tells us, in Christ Jesus himself, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So when the winds and storms of trials are blowing through your life, go to the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. But more than this, Paul reminds us here that it's also the spirit himself, the very spirit of Christ, who is our guarantee that God has indeed secured our future. That word guarantee can be translated as down payment. Now, for those of us, especially us millennials, the word down payment uh, brings a sense of fear and, and trepidation and dread. We think down payment. We think lots of money, debt and being tied to a purchase that we can't really afford. But that is not the sense of the word here. So reject that feeling. And consider here what Paul is saying. He's saying that God has placed a down payment on you, on your life. And that down payment is not in the form of money. It's in the form of, of his own dear presence, the spirit of Christ. Which Romans 5 tells us, right? It is the spirit of Christ who bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, sons and daughters of God. We have the presence of the spirit Confirming for us, not only that the word of God is true, but that we are indeed a part of God's family. So how can we know the word of God and the presence of the spirit of God? Brothers and sisters, our future is unchangingly secure because it was an unchanging God who secured it. Now, as we come to our final point, what, what is to be our response? Well, I, I, I hope in one sense you already know what I'm going to say because I haven't been able to get through this sermon without erupting in praise and doxology. So what is our response to be in the present? How are we to live in light of the fact that, that, that God has, has secured our future and he has forgiven our past? I'll tell you again, joyous, thanksgiving, expectant hope in what God will accomplish in the future and the pursuit of holiness. There was some discussion of this in Sunday school, which I'm grateful for. There are some who fear that the reality of God's sovereignty somehow removes or cancels out the significance and meaning of our present choices. But that is not the case. That's a false understanding of God's sovereignty. Our present circumstances are significant because God has not removed the reality of secondary causes, which means... That God, in His sovereignty, still allows us to exercise free and rational choices. And this ought to lead us to praise as well, because we've been redeemed out of a state where we could do nothing but sin. In our depravity, in our deadness, as Ephesians 2 tells us, we could do nothing but sin. But now, having been redeemed out of that state, and been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, now we have the power to do what God has called us to do. And the Holy Spirit changes and works upon our wills so that we would actually desire the things of God. So God not only gives us the the, the changing and transformation of our desires, but he gives us the power through his spirit to carry out those godly desires. God does it all. God does it all. And so our daily choices are significant. And that means, right, that at the end of this sermon, I can in fact say to you, brothers and sisters, go live in this way. And that is something that you can do and accomplish. And so in view of this wonderful passage, here's what our response is to be. We are to live in a state of joyous thanksgiving. We're to be expectant in hope. We're to look eagerly to the, to the promise of Christ's second coming. And we're to pursue holiness. Holiness, not happiness. And one of my favorite songs in high school was called The Pursuit of Happiness. I'm not going to tell you who the artist was because you'll shame me. I'm not who I was. I'm redeemed. But that was my favorite song. And you know what I thought happiness Well, I'm not going to tell you what I thought happiness was. But the, the tragedy of what we do in, in, in this, with this reality and concept of the pursuit of happiness, which is embedded in our culture and even in our na- nation, the unfortunate tragedy of what we do is we define that happiness by earthly terms. So we set a limit on what happiness can be because we define it by earthly standards. We've put our own shoddy limitations and shackles on happiness, right? And this, in turn, ends up being a kind of Prometheus's rock. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, the myth of Prometheus, where he is bound to push a big boulder up the hill over and over and over and over again, right? Well, we're constantly laboring to push that boulder up the hill in pursuit of happiness, only to get to the top of the hill and the boulder goes rolling back down and we get about two seconds of happiness and then we've got to scramble back down the hill and start pushing the boulder again. Brothers and sisters, leave that boulder alone. <laughs> look look to the cross at the top of the hill and there you will find the happiness that your soul desires. Stop pushing the rock up the hill. It will not bring you the satisfaction you're after. Look to the cross and there you will find it. Calvin in his sermons on Ephesians, which I was encouraged to read last night, he calls Christ the fullness of happiness. The fullness of happiness. The fullness of blessing. That's what Paul means when he says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. What is, what is the sum and substance of every spiritual blessing? It's Christ, Christ Himself. And so we ought to, brothers and sisters, Live a life of thanksgiving. I, look, look, I, I, I'm not going to jump into this debate right now. I know some of y'all are ready to get on to the Christmas music, right? Some of you guys have already decorated. But let me say to you, and I'm totally cool with that. Put up the stockings, put up the tree, but don't skip over a season of thanksgiving. Because the reality is, is that the Christian life should be marked both by a season of thanksgiving and the, the expectant hope that comes with Advent, with the season of advent and christmas so don't skip over one or the other enjoy them both enjoy them both we need both joy for what god has done in christ joy for what god is doing in christ hope for what god will do in the future present thanksgiving and joy expectant hope let me say also to you brothers and sisters trust in the process of sanctification In verse 4, we're told that Christ chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Well, I can tell you right now, I'm not holy and blameless before him, and neither are you. None of us are where we want to be. But trust, trust in the present that God is using the circumstances of our lives. Everything that you're enduring, everything that you're going through, God is working his good purposes through those circumstances to transform you more into his image. Trust The process of sanctification, even if you don't enjoy it, trust it. God's sovereignty is at work in our lives through our present choices. He works all things out according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, we are truly blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What more could God accomplish for your sake that he has not already done? What greater act of sacrifice could be made than that which Christ has suffered for you? What greater demonstration of love could you ask for? If you need a sign, here it is in brightest glory. The sovereign God and King has chosen you and loved you from all eternity, not because you are lovely, but because he desired that you would become as lovely as his own son. And that sovereign God and King does love you now in the present. He sees you right now in this very moment as righteous before him, though we're sitting here recognizing that we're not. He sees his precious son. He sees you united to him by faith, a union which no power in heaven or earth can break. And so shall that sovereign God and King ever love you until all eternity. So saints, can you rejoice? Can you praise that this fact that every spiritual blessing of God is yours in Christ Jesus. Your past is graciously forgiven. Your future is unchangingly secure. Now go and live in the present with joyous thanksgiving, expectant hope and and, and pursue holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we are humbled. We're, Grateful, we're undone. We stand, Lord, weeping, if not outwardly, inwardly, Lord, at the mercy that we have received in Christ Jesus. You have truly blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Lord, we cannot stop from praising you and singing your praise in doxology for that reality. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your joy and help us to go in that spirit and live a life of obedience unto you according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.